Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, a Radio Free Europe podcast on developments in Russia, its war against Ukraine, and its relations with the rest of the world. I'm Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL, and author of The Week in Russia newsletter. This week's podcast is about Alexei Navalny, the opposition politician and anti-corruption activist who was Russian President Vladimir Putin's most outspoken foe for more than a decade. Like a growing number of Russians who have stood in Putin's way, challenged his rule, or attracted attention by presenting a vision of a Russia that is different from the one Putin has shaped over nearly a quarter century in power, Navalny is no more. He died in a prison north of the Arctic Circle on February 16th at the age of 47. And my guest today on The Week Ahead in Russia is one of the people who literally wrote the book on Navalny. He is Jan Mati Dahlbaum, a research group leader at LMU Munich and a co-author with Benjamin Noble and Morvan Laouet of the book Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future. Thanks very much for joining me, Jan. Yeah, thanks for having me on the program, Steve. All right. I, I appreciate it. Uh, great to have you on the show again, though the occasion is, of course, extremely grim. Um, the last time you were uh, my guest was last August, when Navalny had just been sentenced to 19 years in prison after a trial on extremism charges. Like other charges in the past, Navalny and his supporters and many people who have followed uh, his nonviolent activism for years uh, dismissed these as absurd and politically motivated. Uh, I'm just going to mention one thing um, in in the intro. I, I, I mentioned, you know, he, his death. He died in in, a, in an Arctic prison. Um, the the circumstance. I'll just go into the circumstances a little bit. Um, uh, very murky. He was. He seemed fine. I mean, he's been mistreated for years in prison, but he seemed okay uh, the day before, and and I guess the 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 previous day as well. The the day before his death. Um, and the Russian authorities so far have refused to release, uh, to you know, to hand over his body uh, to his relatives, um, and they have not given a suspected cause of death, as far as I'm, as far as I know. So, um, you know, a lot of of concern and 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 mystery and suspicion uh, surrounding his death um, in prison. Um, now, I, I usually ask the guests two questions on this podcast, and this time I'm going to cheat a little by asking two two-part questions. I'll preface the first um, by going back to January 2021, when Navalny returned to Russia from Germany, where he'd been recovering after a near-fatal nerve agent poisoning, uh, which occurred in Siberia, and which he blamed on Putin and the Federal Security Service, the FSB. Um, Navalny was detained at the airport um, upon his return, and he had been in state custody. At the time of his death, he had been in state custody in increasingly harsh jails and prisons ever since. A month after his return, I wrote an article uh, that asked whether his decision to come back to Russia was a masterstroke or a mistake. And I said that it was months or years too early to tell. Now, three years later, 
Navalny is dead, and Putin is sure to secure a new six-year term in the Kremlin next month. Jan, uh, here's my, my two-part question. Um, this, this part it may sound a little strange, but was Navalny's return a mistake? Obviously, it was a decision that ended up costing him his life. Uh, and was he doomed to die an untimely death when he stepped off the plane at Shiremetua Airport in 2021? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. I think it would be interesting first to look at this two-part question from Navalny's own perspective. So, um, I mean, of course, I don't know his thoughts, um, but I know what he's said all all the time, what his um, colleagues have said, what his, his wife has also recently, again, repeated. Um, and so let's look at that. Um, for 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 starters, and so so if we ask ourselves the question, was his decision to return a mistake? Then that assumes that he really had a choice, right? So that there were alternatives for him, um, among which he 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 then picked one, and and that one was to return, right? So, but but he's always been saying that there were no such alternatives for him. Of course, technically that would have been possible, but it wasn't apparently, you know, on the, you know, a, a serious alternative that he even considered. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk about what might be the strategic point behind this, right, and also behind this message that, that he's been putting out. Um, but, but let's take this seriously for a moment. Maybe it, it, it actually was, was, the fa- was the truth, right, so that, that he had this very strong urge to get back to Russia as soon as it was physically possible for him. And that meant that he had to recover, of course, um, but he, he didn't even finalize his recovery. Um, so he was still weak um, from, from the poisoning a few that had occurred a few months earlier. And, and, and he returned at the earliest moment that it was physically possible for him because, um, as he said, that was his only choice, and that was his only possibility. Seeing himself as a Russian politician who couldn't really affect things outside of Russia because that would have made him a dissident, um, or you know somebody who just watches things from the sidelines rather than participating in them directly, even if that participation meant that most likely, and he probably viewed that very clearly, he would end up in prison. Um, but that was something that he then just accepted um, as as uh, a price for for being able to be in Russia, and um, and I, I would I would actually believe that um, I think there were of course you know strategic thoughts behind that decision as well. Um, so, or I mean, strategic sounds a bit you know. Um, Calculated. Uh, yes, exactly. So, I mean, uh, what what I mean is that that he wanted to send a signal. Also, it wasn't just uh, you know his 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 inner urge to to return because he sees himself as a Russian politician, but also he wanted to send a signal to his supporters and to Russian society in general that you don't have to be afraid of your actions, and if you really want to do something, and if you really mean what you what you do, and if you really stand for something, then you should do it. Um, even if that means that you're going to pay a price. Of course, he wasn't expecting the same kind of 
um, sacrifice from his supporters, but he wanted, I think, to send a signal to them that if he can endure what he's going to endure in prison, then they can probably endure, um, uh, or he wanted to help them endure their their own situation in which they are, and 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 send a signal of hope and, and courage to them, and um, and also you know to to show that that he's not afraid of the Russian regime. And while he was in the um, in the court proceedings, um, we we always saw him in, in these videos uh, when he made his statements. He was joking about the authorities, even while they were completely physically dominating him. Um, thereby sending also the signal that he cannot be dominated um, morally, right? And that decision was was also sending that that signal, right? So, so you know, you you can ask whether it was a mistake, um, and and of course it was in one in you know, looking from mainly the the the, the physical aspect of it, and it and it was something that not not many other people would have done. But maybe it was actually the case that he didn't have a, a different choice, and it was also, you know, for him probably the right decision, even if he had a different choice, because it, it sent. It, it was a very powerful gesture to send signals of hope and, and courage. Um, so, and of course, you know, the second part, he, he did die an untimely death, definitely. Um, but again, the question is: um, Was was there an alternative to to that decision? I think one another factor might have played a role, and that is he he definitely accepted a prison term, but he probably didn't know that it was going to be that long and that harsh of a prison term. Because even 2021, early 2021, it was a different Russia than it is today, right? Um, so he was. After all, returning, thinking that he would, he was probably going to be locked up, but for a violation of his parole conditions, and that was the first sentence that he that he received. Right? It was something right. like two point five years or three years or something. And there was this Instagram post that recently resurfaced where he compared that prison term to a journey into the cosmos, right? In the tradition of the of the Russian um, cosmonauts, and he said maybe it's even going to take three years. Right, um, and and that was exactly the term that he was convicted for first, or that he received first. But then, of course, the whole uh, repression took another turn, and and over the year two thousand twenty-one, um, this uh, complete destruction of his of his organization took place. We also talked about that in the in the last episode, um, and uh, this this extremism case then then developed, and he received. First, he received another nine years, and then he received from this extremism case another like nineteen years, and and so the, all of this additional repression and this this um, him making him a real political prisoner rather than you know someone who's convicted of of some uh, fraud case, right? Um, that just happened in two thousand twenty-one while he was already in in prison in Russia, and it was probably the the uh, part of the preparation for 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 Russia's war against Ukraine to completely clean uh, the 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 space from any sort of organization that would have been able to um, to build some sort of uh, resistance against the war and uh, but Navalny probably didn't foresee that didn't foresee that right um, so what, when he returned uh, it was 
he probably thought he was going to end up in prison, but probably not for the end of, for the rest of his life. And and so there was also that element to it. And and had he known that, we don't know what the confirmation would have been. But it, I I actually think that it's possible, at least if not likely, that even that wouldn't have stopped him from from going back to Russia. Yeah, I, um, absolutely. Yeah, that that's a good question. But but I, I tend to agree because, I mean, as you say, the, when he when he did return, uh, there was only one. You know, he it was pretty clear that they were going to arrest him, um, mm-hmm. and I think it was somewhat clear. You know, as I think you suggested that he would be uh, imprisoned for. I think it was either. I think it ended up being two and a half years. At first, it was three and a half um, for this parole violation, which was kind of an absurd thing because he violated parole by being poisoned and you know going to Germany to be uh, to be treated. But um, uh, you know, this was the only this was the only um, conviction against him or, or case that was sort of. Um, mm-hmm known about i think there had been threats of, of further further prosecutions but um but at the time and the, and the other thing you also mentioned um this was um one, 13 months before the invasion of ukraine um and it was before i guess the 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 first military build up in the spring shortly after uh in, Russian buildup of forces at the Ukrainian border shortly after Navalny's uh, arrest, return and arrest, and then the, the huge buildup in the fall that preceded the invasion in February. So, you know, there were not, uh, he, he could not have known uh, yeah. that this was going to happen, even though, as you say, presumably uh, his arrest or, and, and, and in particular, the, the increasing prosecutions against him were part of 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 a you know a move towards towards the uh, invasion of Ukraine. Um, another thing I would say is you know I, I think you mentioned his you know the, the signals that he sent by by returning, um, mm-hmm. and I do think uh, you know uh, quite a few people in the opposition uh, you know criticized him for returning or said you know it was the wrong move. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the signal that it sent, and I think many who, even some who criticized him probably acknowledged that the signal is very strong. And it really is, uh, you know, to re- to return, you know, it's, it's such a difference um, being in Russia uh, and not. And two other two other opposition leaders, uh, Vladimir Karamurza and um, Ilya Yashin, have also returned uh, since then and have also been Im- imprisoned. Uh, I believe that's the case with the Ashen, actually. I'm not sure right now. Um, but, and it also, this is kind of a, um, it also um, raises the question or, or underlines the challenge that's now faced by um, Navalny's widow, Yulia Navalny, who has um, vowed to continue his work, to continue his activism. Um, mm-hmm. But she is abroad in Germany, and, and you know that's one of the one of the big challenges she faces. Uh, so I just wanted to. So, uh, my my second question. Thanks very much for that, Jan. My second question also has two parts, uh, but I'll get to it much more quickly, or I'll try to. 
Jan, you, you've co-authored a book about Navalny, studied him, spoken to many of his allies. Um, I'd be interested in your impression of Alexei Navalny. And apologies for asking you to predict what's to come, but your thoughts about what his legacy may look like. The title of your book um, asks whether Navalny could be Russia's future. There's a question mark on that part of the title. Is that still possible despite his death? Right. So on the on the impression, I can most, I mean, most authoritatively speak, if you will, um, about the impression that his supporters left on me, and I'm not talking about the FBK, the the the, um, the organization that he was leading, um, but more the uh, the comport the supporters on the ground uh, that I was talking to. Um, many of those in the Russian regions in 2017, 2018, uh, when uh, Navalny was was conducting his presidential campaign. So, I mean, it wasn't really a presidential campaign. It was styled like a presidential campaign. If uh, The listeners will probably remember that. Um, very openly styled um, like uh, U.S. Uh, presidential campaigns with the small but significant um, difference that he wasn't a candidate yet, right? So he was campaigning to, to gather signatures to be eventually registered as a, as a candidate. Um, but he wasn't registered as a candidate after all, which was quite predictable. Right, he was denied denied yes. registration. He was he was yes. barred from the ballot. Yeah. But um, but as but, you say, there had already been you know he had already been campaigning for some time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that decision was, I think, in December two thousand seventeen, and the, the campaign had been running for the whole preceding year. Um, so he was touring the country in, in twenty seventeen, um, and and opening these his regional offices, these shabi. As they called them uh, in in almost every region of Russia, and I was doing my fieldwork for my PhD at that time, uh, and so I was um, I was re researching something related, but not not entirely the same thing. So I was looking at um, the legacies of the 2011-12 protest wave. Um, that was you know one of the first um, probably experiences of, of of political action and protest. Um, for many people in the Russian regions for quite some time, and I was interested in understanding uh, what kind of legacies that that um, that protest had left in the Russian regions um, a few years after that. So I was I was going touring touring the regions as well, sort of in parallel to Navalny a little bit, um, and uh, so the campaign was in full swing. By then, and I took the chance to to not just speak to those who protested in 2011-12 and, and ask them what they had done after and what kind of organizations they had been building, um, but also talking to to uh, Navalny's activists or those who were organizing the, the protest events and the and, and working in these shrubby in these regional offices. Sometimes, of course, these were the same people, right? So um, some some people had been. Um, protesting for the first time in 2011-12, and then um, might have been a little disappointed perhaps by the fact that those protests back then weren't really, uh, were, were often dominated by people who were active, or had been active since the perestroika times, so so the, really the protest veterans. And sometimes there had also been conflicts with that sort of earlier generation. And and um, then Navalny's, uh, Navalny's campaign was, um, 
a way for them to to participate more permanently uh, on a, or more, on a more permanent basis and to to do their activism um, in a in a in a different and, and slightly more modern way um, and and so Navalny's uh, Navalny's offices there were really so I was in in Perm in Yekaterinburg in Saratov in uh, Rostov on Don in in Volgograd in Samara and and so, and I talked to, to Navani's activists in all of these places, also in uh, Krasnodar and in the south. And in, in all of these places was really, so these are very different cities, um, obviously, um, with very different local civil society structures. Um, but in all of these places, the, the, the Navalny offices were uh, really new hubs for, um, for activists together. Um, to plan also local politics to in, in Perm, for example, even though Perm is of course a city with or, or was at least a city with a very strong, um, very diverse civil society from from the 1990s or the the, the 80s even, um, and and even but even there it was it was kind of a new impulse and it became quickly became a center for for people from also very different uh, political outlooks to to. Um, uh, to gather and to uh, to plan, um, not just planning getting Navalny on the ballot. That 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 was sort of, of course, the the, the idea behind the campaign, but also using that as a um, as a place for for many other initiatives, be they you know ecological protests or 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 judicial help for uh, for individuals who have been you know in, in in conflict with with the state in one way or the other. Um, so so those were really new. Um, and and actually pretty uniting, uh, uniting centers of, of civic action. And so Navalny has has sometimes been described as this, um, as this uh, a bit of a sectarian uh, person who's gathering a following uh, for himself and is not really ready to cooperate with other opposition forces. That that has been a sort of a continuing um, uh, accusation, and that that is partly. Probably was true, uh, given the fact that that he was really, you know, uh, discussing a lot with with other people from the opposition, um, especially on social media, and, and not always in very friendly terms. And and, and clearly, um, he and his organization sort of wanted to be the, the 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 leaders of the whole of the whole movement, and not everybody was happy with that. But in the regions, the picture was really different, I think. So in in the regions. Those those uh, shtabi were really more uniting than they were dividing, um, because I mean it's a very different thing I think to be an activist in Volgograd or or uh, than than to be an activist in Moscow, right? Um, and and so it was, they were just forced I think partly at least forced by the circumstances uh, to work together much much more closely in the regions and and to just leave behind all of all of those accusations and 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 rhetorics on the federal level um and so so my impression really was that 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 his campaign was very very important for bringing people together and for giving them i mean giving them hope in an abstract way but also giving them experience of collective action and and of of, of a spirit to be able to to do something together um, to have plans and dreams and hopes um, about what Russia can be, even in their local um, surroundings, right? And and I think so. For, so to me, that was the most impressive and 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 positive element of, of Navalny's uh, politics and his and his campaign. 
Um, of course, I know I'm I'm not talking I'm not talking representatively here, and and I'm talking much more about the regional aspect than about the the federal one. But that's the the impression that I I feel most confident talking about, and I think it may also be the most important for the future. Actually, so if you're asking about the future, um, that I think is really an important legacy that Navalny is is leaving behind, uh, regardless of. Um, you know what the what the short term will bring, and the short term is probably going to be very depressing. I mean, uh, so the 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 mess the 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 news of Navalny's death, I think, sent people in the opposition, but probably more broadly, um, into even deeper despair and hopelessness. I mean, of course, we shouldn't forget that many Russians simply don't know about this, and and even if they know, they don't care. Right, so that we shouldn't think that this this news now sent all of Russia into despair. Of course not, um, and and one might say, unfortunately not. Um, unfortunately, probably too too few people care about this. But those who do care, I think there's very little hope right now. Um, but um, on the other hand, uh, and and we know that from social movement theory, uh, they even have fancy words for that. Some call it abeyance. Um, for, for a movement to, to be able to just hold out for years or even decades. Um, because the people know that when the time comes, uh, they can regroup, they can uh, find their old um, friends and acquaintances, they can reactivate their, own net, their, their old networks. Um, because they, 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 all, they did it all before. And so rebuilding is, is going to be much easier than building from the ground ground up, right? So um, once there will be the conditions for new uh, activism, new politics in Russia, and some at, at some point the change will come. I mean that is that is just the law of history. The question is just when, um, and when it when the time comes, then it will be um, possible to just um, remember the things that uh, that they did for example during during Navalny's campaign remember the people they they worked together with and 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 hopefully start something new and maybe that will even resemble this this wonderful Russia of the future that Navalny has been trying to trying to build and so um, of course we don't know when that happens but we know that at some point there will be the the possibility for it to happen and I'm quite Confident, even though it's it's very dark right now, I'm quite confident that um, the experience of collective action that so many people have um, have received, also thanks to Navalny, that that will be a tremendous help in the future. All right, uh, Jan, you know, I could I could comment and and, and try to build on that, but I I really think uh, it was a fascinating account, uh, you know, of your time. Um, Work, uh, you know, meeting with, talking to uh, these people in, in Navalny's um, network. Um, so I'm really just gonna gonna leave it at that. I think it's a very very interesting comments about about uh, the legacy uh, and and kind of uh, I guess unexpected for me in, in the way that um, you're talking about um, this kind of 
local action and and and, and building things and, and how this could this could survive even through years of 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 the times that that Russia is going through now. So um, thanks very much. Um, we're going to wrap it up there, and I uh, really appreciate uh, your joining me, Jan. Yeah, thanks, Steve, for having me. All right. Uh, once again, I've been speaking to Jan Mati Dolbaum, a research group leader at LMU Munich and co-author of the book Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. This has been The Week Ahead in Russia. Our theme music is Nyestrelai, or Don't Shoot, a song from the early 1980s by Yuri Shevchuk and DDT. Please be sure to check out my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which covers the latest developments in Russian politics and society, as well as Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Subscribe by visiting www.rferl.org.